This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Home and Away here on the No Ceilings NBA podcast feed. I am today's host, Stephen Gillespie. And you're probably familiar with my voice. I was just on Draft Deeper yesterday. Today, I get to throw my hat into the ring once again to host on Home and Away, where we normally bring in someone outside of the No Ceilings family and get to learn about them and talk about all kinds of things. And I'm very excited to announce today's guest. He is the godfather of fantasy basketball and is one of the one of my favorite people to listen to over at the Locked On Podcast Network. That being Josh Lloyd. Josh, how are we doing today, man? Good, man. It's good to be here. Good to uh, good to be chatting with you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny. Before we get into today's show, Josh, I just want to kind of walk the listeners through a little bit of our background. This is our first time working together, but we have a little bit of a history coming into today's show. Um, three years ago, roughly, I was looking to get into podcasting and was kind of kind of pecking around a little bit, doing a little bit of research. And I just was I'm pretty I was pretty new to Twitter at the time and I was following you because I listened to Locked On and I saw that you posted something on Twitter saying, hey, for anyone who's interested in doing, you know, podcasts or asking questions or stuff like that, let me know. And I will essentially do like a little seminar to kind of teach you all up. And I went to that and learned a lot. And now three years later, here I am at No Ceilings. So Josh, just want to upfront, you know, thank you for the. Uh, for the role that you played in me podcasting. Have you done anything like that again since that point? Um, so I think that was, I'm pretty sure we did that just after the NBA season shut down uh, for mm-hmm. COVID back in 2020. So I was just looking for ways to try and you know, give things back to people. And we had a decent turn. I think I've done one other thing like that. Um, I don't remember when I did it, but I think it was maybe, maybe last off season did a, a little thing where, yeah, I think it was last off season. We did a little um, meeting similar to that. Like just people asking questions about, about the fantasy industry and podcasting in general. And it's pretty, it's pretty rewarding to have um, people want to come and, and listen to, to hear your sort of tale and the stuff that you've learned over the, over the journey, over the you know, three, almost three and a half thousand episodes that I've, that I've done of, of my show to try and you know, impart wow. some of that um, experience back to people. Yeah. And I learned a lot and obviously, you know, still have a love for, for podcasting. And then we'll fast forward to right before this upcoming you know, this past draft, and we're going to discuss a few of the players that uh, have since been drafted and making their way in the NBA, you know, because of the nature of my job, I have to be away for months at a time. And, you know, it was, it was just so humbling that I come home and I looked in and saw that you had wanted to link up to do some draft discussion because you had posted a tweet asking like, Hey, who are some NBA draft analysts that you would want me to do a show with? And luckily I have, you know, some really good friends and, and people that I've networked with and, and they had suggested me and I was so bummed to, to miss out on the opportunity to, to do some work with you. But man, like it's an honor to, to have you on today's show. I've been following you for a while um, and I'm super excited, man, to talk about some of these young players that we that we, you know, miss the opportunity to, to work together with. But today we get to talk about them, man. So we'll jump yeah. right into it. Um, Paulo Bancaro, Orlando Magic was the number one pick. Right now, at the time of this recording, he's averaging close to 22 points per game, almost seven boards, four assists, shooting just north of 45% from the floor, almost 26% from three, almost 76% from the free throw line, close to a steal, and a block per game. Josh, what were your expectations for Paulo coming into the season? Was he one of these guys that you were were excited to see coming into the NBA? Was he one of these guys that you had more questions because – this last draft had three guys that had a real shot of being taken number one. And, and we'll talk about, you know, Jabari Smith Jr. later, Chet Holmgren, unfortunately injured. We haven't seen much of him, but what was your kind of feel for Paulo coming into this year? I had him number two heading into the draft. I had Chet at one, I had Paulo at two. So I think 
so much of what we've seen, I think it's worked out this way, is the the value that, that he provides is being as that number one offensive engine sort of a player, which isn't going to work on every team necessarily. And he could get into a situation where he's perhaps a little bit lost or misused, whereas Orlando was calling out for that sort of guy. And I think that's why we've seen such the explosion from his production, like why he's averaging 20 points per game, because we all knew that they had a bunch of solid role player type guys, but not someone who could be the guy. Mm-hmm. He goes to Houston and then you've got to fight for the ball for Porter and Green and all those sort of players. So where does that fit? He goes to Oklahoma City and Shea needs the ball a ton, obviously. Then you've got other players like Giddy who need to work with the ball and maybe it wouldn't have been quite as good. But this is like perfect situation, perfect fit. And yeah, those sort of numbers are higher than I expected. Obviously, I don't I don't go I think if you come out and say a hey, rookie's gonna average twenty two points a game. Like that's you're wrong. Like it's just not going to happen. Majority. Right. <laughs> so I've been pleasantly surprised. Some of the issues that he has carried over from college with some of the um, some of the efficiency problems aren't there. Obviously, he's not shooting the three ball particularly well. We had some of those concerns, but being able to be so um, dominant as the number one guy, get to the line as much as he has, is is a huge thing as well. I think it bodes really well for the future. He's going to have to iron some of these things out as we get better, like some of the shooting numbers and some of the uh, the peripheral um, defensive stats or even just defensive ability needs to mm-hmm. needs to work up. But like, I don't think you could have asked for more from Paolo at this point in his career. Yeah, absolutely. And he was a, a player. I had him at that number two position as well. I actually had Chet number three, but a lot of the other folks here at No Ceilings had him ranked number one. Um I felt, though, even though he was my second-ranked prospect, when I found out that Orlando had the number one pick, I felt like that was probably the best landing spot because, you know, it was a spot for him in Orlando just to kind of really only have to focus on basketball. There's not a lot of distraction outside of Orlando that he really has to worry about, you know, contending with or anything like that, whereas Houston is a really big nightlife uh, city, so to speak. And, you know, getting him in Orlando where he would be the de facto number one option as well, like on the court, being the number one option, I felt like was something that the Magic sorely needed. They needed that guy. And Franz Wagner, obviously, as an ancillary playmaker, being a really strong number two, Paolo, I think, fits that scheme very well. And I was excited to see, you know, what I have been seeing so far in the year with him and the success that the Magic have had, even though that the record really isn't necessarily the strongest there are a lot of things to be excited about with the the length there. Before we move on to the next guy, Josh, I want to ask you, you had chat number one. He's not on today's agenda, obviously, because he hasn't played. What was it about him that made you feel like he should, that he was the top guy? I just think finding, finding that sort of, like defensive ability, like the, mm-hmm. I, I think some of the stuff of like, oh, he can't switch or he's going to get bullied was nonsense, right? I think that, his ability to protect at the rim, to be able to switch out and guard perimeter guys you know, decently well. He's never going to be the best guy out there, but to not be completely cooked in that position, but also bring an ability to handle the ball, to pass a little bit you know, with shooting development, to be an offensive guy. That's that's a package that you don't get. Now, he's probably not the offensive engine that, that Paolo is, but the mm-hmm. defensive ability is already there. So getting that combination together, like big men can be overvalued quite a bit and they are quite replaceable. But if you get a top end one, like they're super valuable. We know that like the delineation, like you talk all NBA centers, like, okay, there's Jokic, there's Embiid. And, and then what else is there? Right. But getting that, getting that top guy, like getting that top guy, if you can get a good center and they are that guy that can do it on both ends reasonably well, whether they lean defense or offense more, it doesn't really matter. I think he's really valuable, but if they're not at that level of prospect, then I'm not that interested in the center. But I think Chet sort of crossed that bar to be able to do a bunch of interesting things offensively and be really good defensively at the same time. Yeah, I felt like at Gonzaga, he did a really good job of not necessarily forcing himself on that team. On offense, oftentimes he was either their third or fourth option. You know, they have to feed Drew Timmy on that team. And I felt like Chet was great in transition, you know, three-point shot. The passing in particular on offense, I feel like, is going to translate really well. And seeing the way that Shea has taken yet another leap this year, um, it is pretty exciting to think about what he and Chet can look like moving forward. And we'll move forward here and talk about Benedict Matherin. Right now for the Indiana Pacers, he's averaging about 18 points per game, four rebounds, and an assist and a half per game shooting only 42% from the field, about 36% from deep, 81% from the line, about half a steal per game, and barely anything on the blocks. He was taken sixth overall. 
again, I'll ask you, what was your impressions of the, what you saw from Benedict Matherin out of Arizona? And what have you thought about his production so far? He surprised me. I wasn't as high on him coming in. I'm always a little bit skeptical of these almost pigeonholed shooting guard type players who you don't ever think can be a primary, but aren't big enough to guard up and be threes. It's like, they are sort of like, who is he? Is he Tim Hardaway? Like, you know, what else does he do apart from be a shooting guard? That was my worry with him. He's also, I think a, a sophomore versus a lot of the freshmen coming in. And that often will just lead me not to, not to ding them too much, but like sure. when you put up big numbers as a guy that's older than a lot of your competitors, and it's more so for juniors and seniors, not that they can't have success in the NBA, but like, when you take big leaps as you get three years older than opponents, again, this isn't as much for him that I always tend to have in, have a little bit more skepticism associated with that. But my thing with him is, all right, the scoring is really good. What else can you do to impact the game? And I, I wasn't sure about that. So I had him a little bit lower. But what I have been really impressed with, with Matherin heading into the season, and he's still, all of those things, I think, still exist. Like, what are you, sure. if you're not scoring, what else are you doing? Because so far, nothing. Like, he's not defending, he doesn't rebound, doesn't pass, doesn't, but he's scoring really well. But what I am impressed with, and this is really hard, as you know, Stephen, like how did, getting to the line, like yeah. his free throw attempt rate is huge. And that is a massive indicator for future success. So I thought maybe he'd be more like a Malik Beasley, a Tim Hardaway, a insert shooting guard who hits threes and scores and doesn't do much else. But maybe he can become Donovan Mitchell, a mm-hmm. guy that can do more stuff and getting that free throw attempt rate up and be a number one offensive guy who can develop a little bit more. Now the passing and ball handling isn't, isn't there yet. I don't know if he can ever become that where Mitchell is, but getting that level of free throw attempts as a rookie is, is hyper impressive to me. Yeah. And I think um, oftentimes for, especially for us here in the States, Josh, it's people staying up on the East coast to watch West coast games is, is often one of the the challenges. And, mm. you know, if you don't have a subscription to, you know, a synergy or an instat or anything like that, you're, you're susceptible to only being able to watch them on live TV. Right. And just sometimes dudes aren't staying up to watch West coast games here on the East coast in the States. And I felt like over the year, like the athleticism kept getting um, knocks against him and, you know, his, ability to get to the paint and even his defense at the college level, I felt like was um, a little bit underrated and slept on. And a lot of the the concerns about him that I would hear continuously throughout the cycle was almost just repeated because people weren't necessarily watching him. Um, I had him um, within our top 10. I know that our entire no ceilings team was really, was kind of high on him, but I don't think that any of us expected the impact that we're seeing now where it's not just Paulo Boncaro and everybody else, right? Like seeing Benedict Matherin on this Indiana Pacers team step in and impact in a really, you know, in a real way next to a, a, a guy like Tyrese Halliburton. None of us, I don't think, saw that this early, and it's been a pleasant surprise. Um, Josh, we'll move forward now to our third prospect, Jaden Ivey, playing for the Detroit Pistons. He's given you about 15 points per game, four and a half boards, four assists, from the floor, 30% from deep, 72% from the line, a steal, and close to a half a block a game. He was the pick before Benedict Matherin, and it's interesting, Josh, right? Like, when you look and see where he got taken, he was supposed to be the Killian Hayes successor. I think a lot of people thought that Killian Hayes has had a little bit of a renaissance. Um, A lot of us envisioned him playing next to Cade Cunningham. Unfortunately, Cade just got hurt and is, you know, dealing with surgery. Ivy is about to get a lot more run than I think a lot of people originally anticipated. What have you thought about his production so far? And again, you know, what were what were your thoughts coming into the year on him? I had him at four, um, but okay. you know, in this sort of a draft, I think I think what we've seen so far also would back this up. It hasn't been particularly; it's not a particularly strong draft class, I don't think, at this stage in comparison to to other years. Uh, but I had did have him at four. Um, I think it's been interesting. I he's obviously really fast. I think his production with Cade has been was much better than it has been without Cade, which suggests mm-hmm. to me he's probably not going to be release anytime soon, be a, a primary number one point guard because and we've even seen like Dwayne Casey do this, is that since Cade's been out, he's actually reduced his minutes. Like he's playing, yeah. I think he's played under 30 minutes for five or six straight games. And they're like bloody preferring Alec Burks and, you know, Corey Joseph at times 
over him and he's really struggling in this role where there is a little bit more attention focus which is understandable as a rookie rookie point guards as you know they suck like nearly every time like they're bad nearly nearly all the time rookie point guards unless they're yep. elite of the elite they're terrible and it takes a bit of time but that was i guess part of the thing with ivy coming in it was like Yes, he's a point guard, but is he a point guard? Like, he's not really a point guard. But he only averaged, what, four assists, I think, in college. Um, mm. And he's doing about the same thing in the NBA. I'm not sure that he is a point guard. And then you get to that situation. Is he big enough to be a full-time two? Can he push into being a three? I, I don't think so. Is he a little bit, like, lost positionally? I, I, don't, I don't know. Like, I've been impressed at times. The speed is good. There are big highlights that he has. Like, huge. Oh, man, look how quick he got to the rim. That's great. But the totality of the work, the shooting concerns, it's all the same from college. The lack of playmaking and feel isn't quite there, in my opinion. I don't know where I fit with him. Losing the Cade thing, which he was much better with Cade, and I think that would have helped his yes. development. I think he's going to um, change some opinions of Ivy, maybe for the worse, and that might lead to him being undervalued. But I wouldn't say I've been blown away by him. Okay, yeah, I think that's fair. From the From the games that I have seen, you know, the processing, the adjustment going from college to the professional ranks, especially on a, a team where maybe you're given a little bit too much of a load than than you probably should in terms of, you know, letting the game come easier to you. But I feel like Dwayne Casey is a, a pretty good coach for a young player to have because, you know, he's been around the game for forever now. And, you know, he was a guy that I had ranked in my top five as well. Um, because of the athleticism, I feel like the defense that he that he showed in college eventually would catch up, right? Like there is that adjustment period and it's still very early. But, you know, I was also kind of surprised because going to Detroit where Cade was going to be the de facto ball handler, you had to rely so much more on Ivy's off-ball ability. And there were concerns about the shot. The shot did take a massive leap from, from his prior season to, yep. to last year. And, and that was more promising to see, but I think it, it may have been better for him to go to a place where, you know, he would be more so of that on ball creator. And again, with, with Kate out, I, I know that he's been important to his development. Maybe, maybe coach Casey will start looking at opportunities for him to develop more with the ball in his hand, but that takes what Killian is doing out of the equation now. Right. Well, okay, here's a question for you. Do you think Killian has sure. produced more than or has been a better actual player this season than Ivy? Not talking about what their future is or next decade, but actual production this season. Do you think Killian's been a better player than Jaden Ivy this season? Oh, yeah, hands down. Yeah, I'm thinking proje projection long-term. Like, it'll probably cost you games, but, like, if you're looking solely for player development, getting the ball in Ivy's hands, I think, would be a little bit more of the move. But it... Coach Casey is also coaching for his job, you know, so it's kind of one of those things where you got to separate what would be more fun and enticing as a draft analyst as opposed to like what's mm. best best for the team as a whole. They're only um, uh, Killian Hayes is only six months older than Jaden Ivey, which is also pretty weird considering like you know, yeah, Killian, he was 18 when he came in and Ivy's mm. already 20. Like it's third season for Killian, but there's six months difference in age. Uh, he's, he's a, you know, back. So I talked about, you know, older players. I don't want to get criticized for your writing of older players. But my thing with these guys that, that are second-year guys, like, like Ivy and Matherin going this high, is that my, my concern there is that if they were this level of prospect to be a top three, top four guy, like why didn't they come out as freshmen? Like the elite of the elite, the top three, top four players usually stand out as freshmen, mm -hmm. right? And then they get drafted based on, like buddy Josh Primo got picked at pick 12 coming out as a freshman. Like he's nowhere near these level yes. guys, but these guys didn't <laughs> decide to come. They they didn't come out because they didn't get favorable. I'm guessing. Uh, do, they, do they really go, yeah, I want to go back and, li and live in Purdue for another season versus getting paid $7 million as an NBA player, like highly doubtful. Like, I'm thinking yeah. they just didn't get anything favorable there. And that extra year boosted their stock was in general, that extra year. Oh, sorry. The, 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 the high level guys, the guys that you want to take top three, top four, uh, the players who show that immediately, they show it through high school, they show it through college, they, they dominate that level. And, you know, the reason they didn't, the reason these guys played the second year in college is because their first year was bad or not up to that level of being that high. Of a yeah. Pick. But I, so that's what I want to clarify on that. And that's totally fair. And, and these guys too, you know, uh, Matherin and Ivy, they did get some consideration, right? But it goes down to what were your expectations coming in as a freshman, you know, mm -hmm. And, and how hot, how low were you satisfied being taken? I think a lot of these guys, you know, are competitive human beings and they want to be recognized as how they see themselves. So 
taking that year to come back and improve their stock and get better. Obviously, it helped, right? But like uh, you also said, part the, of it, the, the, it's also part of it is the the draft before was in, incredibly more stacked. Yes. So, yeah, even if your talent didn't change, like going into a weaker draft gets you picked higher just because there's the less talent there. There's all there's also that too, right? So there's mm. there's so much nuance behind behind a draft at large, but obviously we're seeing some of the flashes that may Ivy intriguing, but we're also seeing a lot of the concerns kind of rising up to the top. Josh, we'll transition now to our fourth prospect, Shaden Sharp, who was the mis- the biggest mystery of the draft community last year. There was the whole concern on is he gonna go to the draft? Is he going to play in college? You know. <laughs> The latter did not happen, but the former obviously did with the Portland Trailblazers taking Shaden Sharp seventh overall. And Josh, this would be a pretty interesting part of this done too before we even get to the numbers and how he's performing this season. How did Shaden Sharp kind of start coming to you in your world, right? Like how did you start hearing about him? What were your expectations? How what was your kind of level of projection with him? Well, I don't watch any sort of high school stuff usually. The only guys that I really ever see in high school or you know, before even college age stuff is like guys like Victor, Luca, Chet. I'd watch some Paolo high school stuff as well. They're the sort of guys that, that I'd seen. So I've never seen any of Shaden Sharp stuff through any of that stuff. And then I started to hear about it when all of the um, – you hear a bit more about him with the Kentucky stuff, which I think was maybe like January when that started to become more mm-hmm. of an issue than he was sitting at. And then, yeah, but – what could I see? Like I couldn't really see much from there. And then I do most of my draft stuff starting in, in April through May, June, trying to catch up on all that stuff and really heavily focus there. So tried to focus there, but it, how like it was really impossible to, to find anything that was interesting with him and even trying to find numbers from your know, tournaments that he's been in is really, really tough. So just trying to take the word of a lot of people who had seen him. I actually had him number five on my board, mainly because of my uncertainty with so many of the prospects in this draft. And sure trying to put some faith in youth and athleticism, which is what he brought and size as well is a key thing to me. Like we talk about, you know, can Ivy guard up and play the three? Well, I don't know, but I know Sharp's like bigger and he's got maybe equal athleticism, if not more. And I was, you know, I had still had Ivy ahead, but that sort of thing drew me to him, even though there is no track record of production there. Yeah. And it's really interesting too, from even our, you know, our circle of influence and what we really do here at no ceilings where we just cover draft stuff year round. And we, one thing that we've learned as analysts is that you can't always rely on the college film. Like you got players Mm -hmm. like Zaire Williams, for example, who had a miserable season for Stanford, right. Um, Mm -hmm. Was a high school wonder. And depending on which film you watched, you start thinking like, is he a guy? Is he not? Same thing for Brandon Boston jr. Out of Kentucky. Another one of these guys where it's like, is he an NBA player? Or is he not? We're not seeing it in college, but the high school film looks pretty nice. So, you know, as analysts, you kind of have to start weighing these things. And when you only have the high school film, you're talking about a lot of projection as to what he can be as an NBA player. And right now as an NBA player, he's giving you eight points per game, two and a half boards, half an assist, shooting about 48% from the floor, about 34% from the three-point line, 60% from the free throw line, half a steal. A, a little, just a few blocks on the air. And again, he was picked seventh. Playing for Portland, playing, you know, with, with Coach Billups and Damian Lillard, he has literally jumped off of uh, the film for a lot of people. What What are your thoughts about how he's performing right now? Look, the thing with him is he's never going to put up these big numbers this season because they, they, they don't need him to. Like there's, they're not a typical lottery team in terms of they're just bereft of talent. They've got two other guards who are significantly better than him. So he's never going to get those big opportunities to um you know, to play 30 entitlement minutes a night like the way that Matherin or Ivy does. Irrespective of how they perform, they're going to get those minutes right to try and mm-hmm. develop, whereas Sharp doesn't have that opportunity. And even when you look at his numbers and, and his assist numbers for the season are, are putrid, like they're pitiful. But you go, okay, yeah. is that that he is selfish? Is that that he's a black hole? Is that that he can't run a pick and roll? Or is it the fact that there is never a situation in a game where you're going to be like, all right, boys, clear out. Sharp's got it. Well, and and Dame sit in the corner. Like this is never going to happen, right? So that's all context dependent. So I don't know what the fully realized Shaden Sharp is because there's actually no reason for this team to say, all right, let him cook. He's the point guard. Let him run things and let him develop. It's like go and do big jumping stuff 
and let everyone else figure figure it out. And he's playing. It's the weird spot of being a high level prospect on a team that's actually good with other mm-hmm. guys in your position where you have a very defined role and you can't actually explore these other things. So it is again, we're in a situation where I know we didn't get college tape, but now we don't actually have standard rookie tape on Shaden Sharp either because. I don't believe that he's this bad of a part. Maybe he is, but I don't believe that he's this much of an offensive black hole. I just don't. I think that's very team context dependent. Yeah, and when you hear Coach Billups describe him as a combination of what Brandon Roy and Vince Carter, like obviously those are some of the, the biggest names that any sort of prospect can get compared to. What I've loved about how Portland as a team has done with him is that they keep his role very simple and Mm. it's hard to be a big assist guy when you're mainly out there to finish a play. And I think that that's um, that, that simplified role Portland historically, obviously there's a new regime, but they they're a little bit slower on their development. You know, you see how long it took CJ McCollum to rise to the side and Anthony Simons the same way. We're starting to see Nasir little finally realize a little bit of that potential right now. Shaden Sharp, he's given you good minutes already. Um, Some efficiency, you know, some promising efficiency numbers here. But with that simplified role, you kind of – I have to kind of believe, Josh, that Portland is looking just to slowly progress him in order to feature, obviously, Damian Lillard, Jeremy Grant, and Anthony Simons. Is that kind of what you're seeing as well? Yeah, look, exactly that. And like Portland, you're right. They've had that history. And even other guys that have sort of blossomed on other teams, Gary Trent, Will Barton, these guys that barely played in Portland and then found bigger roles later on. Like I would say that, you know, I had Sharp at, at five in the draft. I, I don't know if I'd push him ahead of Ivy. I'd, I'd go close to it though, based on, on what I've seen, even though the numbers are obviously significantly worse because context is important and the athleticism, the size, some of the shot, tough, tough shot making I'm seeing from him, yeah, you know, that I think the other stuff will come, but you've yeah. got to understand what position he's in here with this team. Yeah, and he's kind of a shot in the dark to where outside of the big three that we just got done talking about a little bit, we're going to still get into Jabari here soon. Outside of those three, like what other player has the highest ceiling of potentially being a superstar? Like Shaden Sharp fits the the athletic profile, the physical profile of traditionally what the NBA will put out there as a superstar. So. I totally get why you ranked him where you did, and I get why uh, Portland um, drafted him where they did. So now to Jabari Smith Jr., playing for Houston, 12 points per game, seven boards, almost one assist per game, shooting about 39% from the floor, 36% from deep, 83% from the free throw line, about half a steal, about a block per game, and he was selected third overall, kind of fitting that big three that I was just alluding to. I was really big on him, Josh. I actually had an opportunity to go watch him live and his warm-ups and things like that. Um, very encouraged from what I saw from him playing out of Auburn. It was kind of like pick your favorite flavor between these three. I had Jabari Smith as my number one prospect by the time the year came to an end, not because of what I thought he could be in his year one, but long-term projection based off of you know his physical tools and his shot and his defense, things like that. How how did he kind of rub you as this as you you were diving into film and obviously his his first little bit in Houston was rough but it looks like he's starting to kind of piece a little bit of some things together. Yeah, look, I had him I had him third. You talk about your yeah, favorite flavors of ice cream. He's my least favorite out of that three. Is like to me, he's the pistachio. I know people like pistachio ice cream. <laughs> I, I think it's a it's a dreadful flavor, but I don't think Get it out of here. I had him I had him third, right? Uh, okay. Because the, of two reasons, like I think he's, I think he's really good. I think he's actually really solid. And apart from that first couple of weeks, I think he's been fantastically good. I did a, show, a segment on my show the other day. Hey, let's right now try and pick the first team or rookie, uh, top five rookie players. And I, I had him in the top five, just even though he's shot so poorly. Mm-hmm. From what he's done, like his ability defensively, really good. The yep. shooting is starting to come around, but I didn't have him in those top two because I didn't see. You are the the defensive player we need to scheme around, which I think Chet can become. And you're not someone who's going to be able to ever drive 26, 27, 30% usage on offense. Like you're going to be a 22% offensive guy who might average 16 points on 50% shooting with two and a half threes and eight rebounds. But if I need a bucket, can you be that guy? Can I give it to you and you drive? Maybe not. 
Like on defense, are you going to just deter people from coming to the rim or are you going to be someone who is not going to get beaten and can provide help defense and can be the, the extra on the double team? Like being really, really good at everything without being absolutely elite at, at one particular thing. And that's why I had him down at three because I think that Paolo and Chet have both an elite option or elite upside in at least one thing. And sure. I think he's yeah, sort of no. I think he's I think he's sort of shown that. Like that's he's really good. But is there is there all NBA upside there? I, I don't think so. But is he just gonna be a really good player for 10 plus years? Probably. And and that's I think obviously, even if that was your evaluation, like him landing at three, you're still you're still high on him as a player yeah. overall, right? So and I feel like what once we started talking about that big three throughout the year. It was almost like whoever you ranked third, you almost hated them. And that's what kind of the narrative was throughout the year. It, it got really ridiculous in that aspect. But landing in Houston, you know, they don't have what you would, would consider a a table setter, like like a true point guard. They also don't really have like a, a high-end five. You know, Operation Shangoon, really creative offensively, not necessarily a rim protector. I don't consider Jabari as a rookie, and I didn't coming into the year. I don't think that he you're looking to put him as your anchor, right? Like I think that you want to kind of have him in that Jaron Jackson Jr. type role where he can kind of roam free, play off of a natural rim deterrent and kind of weak side rim protect and just be a menace like that and obviously be able to switch out on the perimeter as well. How much do you think that playing in Houston is kind of slowing down progression for him or do you think that he would have had a hard time regardless of where he went? I think he would have had a hard time regardless, really. Like okay. his, shooting, his shooting numbers weren't, like the three point shooting in Auburn, fantastic, but finishing inside the arc, like bad. Like wasn't able yeah. to be a finisher or a driver or anything like that. And it's basically the same thing. So some of it is yes. Like I think people do look at the Houston backcourt and go, well, yeah, they're they're terrible passes. I'm not sure that's exact. I think Porter has improved quite a bit there. Jalen Green has taken oh, some yes. big strides. They're not they're not elite. We're not talking about like a you know, Cade level of vision or anything like that. But are they better point guards than like? Markel Fultz and Cole Anthony better passes probably like they probably maybe Fultz I don't know but they're yeah. they're probably better passes than those guys so I don't I think sometimes that gets a little bit overstated um you mentioned Jaron Jackson like Jaron Jackson's obviously an, an elite shot blocker but maybe, maybe that's the sort of player Jabari is like Jaron will probably never become like this elite MVP caliber big man but he's going to be really really good for a really really long time like sub all-star if not all-star level level of player maybe defensive player of the year and maybe maybe jabari can become that sort of guy which again at pick three is an awesome awesome pick i'm just not yeah. sure that if you pushed him back into the 20 what bloody year, 2021 draft like mm -hmm. would he go at six or seven and then the expectations would be a little bit lower and you'd feel unbelievable about what he's producing but because of the way that this class sort of set out like he was a clear three i think he's still or clear top three and i think he still is in that zone but maybe that expectation gets pushed a little bit higher because of relative surrounding talent. And I, I think that's a totally fair way to look at it. All right, we'll move on to no ceilings favorite. Like we were super big on this guy as a collective. Keegan Murray out of Iowa. He's giving you right now for Sacramento about 12 points per game, four rebounds, about an assist, shooting 42% from the floor, 36% from deep, 84% from the free throw line almost one steal and block per game. And he was taken fourth overall by the Sacramento Kings. And I know that he wasn't necessarily the sexiest pick for a lot of people. Uh, Josh, you're talking about a guy who fits the mold of that older prospect, right? That that took a little bit more time and seasoning. Iowa, it seems like they're one of these teams that always have a player in the wings, right? Like they had Luca Garza, who was just like mm -hmm. a player of the year candidate for a long time. Then they give it to, to Keegan Murray. Now he gets drafted. Now Chris Murray looks like he's that same level of player at Iowa still. How did you feel about Keegan Murray coming into the year? Cause I'll be honest with you. I said that the collective as a whole was really high on him. I was probably the lowest out of the entire group. I think I had him at like ninth or 10th overall. What were your thoughts about him? Uh, exactly the same. I had him at nine. I was, okay. I was not as interested in him at all. A older prospect, right? Already 22, right? That's, yeah, that's, that's old. Like some of these guys coming at Jalen Duran's 18. That's four years difference between mm -hmm. these guys. It's, it's a big difference of three and a half, whatever it is. He's 22, right? Round he up, averaged yeah. seven seven points a game as a freshman. Yes, Luca Garza was there, but it's Luca Garza, man. Like if you are actually an elite level prospect, you you 
should be able to demand more of that. And I, I get the, the, the Iowa scheme and all that sort of stuff. And then everything was basically working for him in that second year in, in, in Iowa. Hot, huge usage. The defensive numbers field, comp- there's no way that was going to translate to the NBA. And my thing with him always was, and this is maybe more tilted towards a fantasy perspective as well, but it's like, all right, we saw Keegan do this at Iowa. We saw him in summer league, but look at his teammates, right? He had he was the number one guy. That summer league team was dreadful for the Kings. It was yeah. him and nobody else. All right, so he had everything. What does he do when he's the fourth offensive option? Can he actually be that spot up guy? Can he um, pass? Can he be a connector? Can the defensive stuff come in? And I would say so far, the answer is no. Like, this is a team that, well, maybe that's harsh. This is a team that is trying to win and push for the playoffs. So he routinely plays, like, he gets benched. He plays 24 minutes because he struggles. Yeah. And he's not fitting into that role. I hated the pick at four. It's, to me, it was really short-sighted from the Kings to do that. And not that I hate him as a prospect. I think he's going to be a solid NBA player. and He's going to be better than what he is. But the the deficiencies that I thought of what he produced in his game at, at Iowa, the, the context behind how he got to those numbers and how that would then translate. It's much like, uh, I don't know if we're going to talk about it, but like Johnny Davis, like, all right, cool. Yeah. H- how does it work in the NBA? And I had similar concerns of how it was going to work to that level for Keegan in the NBA. And so far, I don't know what the answer is. I, I, I don't know how it works. I think he can become a solid, but is, what's his upside? Is that Harrison Barnes? Like his, his teammate? Is that what he becomes? A... 20 usage guy who scores 15 points and is passable defensively, but never actually can do, I can never be good enough to push to a number one or number two option. I'm not sure. I haven't been, I've been blown away by Murray. And I know he's had some issues, some personal stuff off court death yeah. with his grandmother and the back issue and all that sort of stuff. But when your priors line up, when you go, I don't know how he fits in as the fourth option. And then you get on the court as the fourth option. You go, Oh, he doesn't fit in as the fourth option. doesn't work. It's hard to get past that. Yeah, and then considering the team that that they have right now, like De'Aaron Fox looking like, you know, with Tyrese Halliburton being off the team now, he's really stepped up and showing a lot of what, the, realizing a lot of the potential that a lot of folks thought that he had. DeMontis Sabonis as like a uh, offensive hub as a five, but not necessarily mm. a rim protector. Maybe a little bit more expectations for Keegan Murray to clean things up on that end when he's in. Um, Malik Monk really stepping into his own. You know, Kevin Herter also... So being on one of these kind of veteran-laden teams with a coach that, you know, with Coach Brown like how they have right now, maybe maybe that has a little bit more to do with it. But, I mean, the efficiency isn't necessarily where you would want to have for the fourth overall pick. But he, I think that he's showing some indications that he could be, like you said, a really good player. But is that worth taking at number four? I think that that answer is kind of team dependent and whatever your team's philosophy is moving forward, right? Because some of these GMs, some of these coaches, they want to keep their job and and getting a player that you feel like can contribute immediately in some meaningful ways, even though he might not necessarily be a superstar, maybe that's the approach that they that they have moving forward. I think generally my my idea also is like, if the Kings overvalue you, then I'm going to feel like good about my evaluation. Like I was down on Davion Mitchell the year before. I thought, what are you doing taking this guy at pick nine? Yeah. And it's, it's the Kings. So like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to assume that they're going to make it a wrong decision a lot of the time. And it's not always going to be the case, but when the Kings go in over and like, they because they have such a focus, we've got to make the playoffs and I get it. I get why they do, yeah. but yeah, sometimes yeah, if Keegan Murray went at seven, I'd be, I'd be like, I, I like, I like what he's doing. Like, I like the production. He's a very, very solid. I think he's going to develop into a very solid NBA player. But I, I don't see star with him personally. Yeah, that's totally fair. All right. So speaking of uh, going seven, we'll talk about our seventh prospect that we've gotten to so so far on the night. That being Jalen Duran. He's given you about seven points per game, eight rebounds per game, almost an assist. He's given you close to sixty percent from the floor. Um, I don't think he shot a three-pointer yet in his NBA career. Only about 51% from the line, uh, half a steal, almost one block, and he was taken 13th overall. I love Jalen Duran coming out of Memphis, and and that Memphis team was kind of a tough watch, right, because they had Imani Bates, who, mm-hmm. you know, once proclaimed number one prospect, like easily one and done, is going to be one of the top guys whenever he comes out of the draft, now playing for Eastern Washington. Jalen Duran, considering the context, I was really high on his upside. I felt like his upside was going to be top half of the league at his position. And Detroit was kind of a weird fit because they they needed athleticism. They already had beef stew. 
curious to see how those two playing next together going to work. But I think the flashes for Jalen Duran have been pretty promising, although he's not necessarily popping off like some of the other rookies in this class. How did you feel about him playing at Memphis, and what have you thought of him so far? Like what, yeah, hearkening back to what we talked about earlier about centers, right? How they can be quite replaceable. So, unless I'm getting someone with an absolute elite top level skill set, I'm going to deprioritize centers in general. Um, but I still had Duran just clearly the next guy in this list. And I think I had him maybe at like 11 or 12 um, in the mm-hmm. draft. So, around this spot. And I pretty heavily criticized the Hornets for trading that pick away um, for, yeah whatever stupidity that organization seems to go through on a, on a daily basis. Like that was yes. stupid from them. Um, heading into Detroit, I've been impressed with him. To me, like he is clearly their option there. Like obviously it's not Marvin Bagley, despite what they try to keep pushing on us that maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe Marvin's the answer. I think he's not like, he's obviously not. I don't think Stewart's the answer. I don't even think Stewart's a very good prospect personally. I think that he, mm. they're trying to shoehorn him into this power forward spot. It doesn't make sense there. I think eventually when the Pistons start to get good, you'll see Isaiah Stewart play 18 minutes coming off the bench, much like they've realized with Sadiq Bey doing the same thing to him at the moment. I think they should be forcing, not forcing, but just letting Ivy and Duran develop together. That's what the season's done now. Like Cade's not there. Like just see what these guys can do together. They've made the call. They've switched him into the starting lineup. That's great. I've been in, I haven't, there's been a few things that have been a little bit off with him, but that's a young a young player growing. Yeah. The rim protection numbers, the shot blocking numbers haven't been as as consistently good as they were in Memphis. He's not even averaging a block per game. Um, right. But to me, he has out of those Stuart Bagley and Duran, like he is clearly flashing. This is the guy that we want to pro- we should prioritize as our center here is the future. Where the other guys go doesn't really matter. Duran should be the the priority focus there. Yeah, and I think, too, with young big men in particular, it's a hard adjustment, right? Because depending on the defensive scheme, whether you're a drop, whether you're a switch-everything team, um, your assignments kick it pretty hard. Like, you're having the best athletes in all of basketball running at Mm -hmm. you all the time, trying to pat their head on the other side of the court whenever they get done with you. Obviously, the athleticism was something that stood out for everyone who watched Jalen Duran, and I think that his body is already showing that he's a pro in that aspect. The processing, I think, is going to get better. Um, He's already showing a little bit of those passing flashes that I loved whenever he was at Memphis. I think that his short roll ability is going to be pretty promising whenever they start getting some some better players on the team, like if they had more than, say, Bogdanovich as a a vet on this team. Um, And again, you know, rebounding, I think the shot blocking is going to get there. He seems a little tentative in the paint. Like he seems like he's he seems like he plays to avoid foul trouble. And I think that once he starts um, adjusting to that mindset and understanding that, like, you have to, like, as a rim protector, you're going to foul sometimes. Like, that's just the nature of the game. Um, When he starts getting down, like, those nuances and intricacies of his position on that end of the floor, I think that he's really going to um, start to come into his own a little bit. But it's going to take a little time because he's one of the younger dudes in this entire class. And it's a tough position and it's a tough assignment playing for the Detroit Pistons to do that on their squad. So going from one big man to another, from one guy who is adjusting to being a run protector to one who is just a professional in nature, Walker Kessler uh, playing for the Utah jazz. Uh, do we call him Rudy Gobert 2.0 yet? Like, is that, I mean, we mu- <laughs> I, look, honestly, like he's super impressive. And this is again, like, I don't want to harp on this point, but this is where you pick centers. Like this is where you pick Rudy Gobert. This is where you pick Jarrett Allen. This is where you pick him. Like Walker mm-hmm. Kessler doesn't have huge offensive upside. He doesn't. He can be the rest, best rim protector in the league really easily. Like he's already he's already unbelievably good at doing that. And I don't know whether they're going to start him over Jared Vanderbilt at any point. But yesterday, notably, well, I don't know what time this is coming out, but Thursday's game, he closed the game and played all of overtime and did it while having five fouls uh, over yeah. Vanderbilt. Um, I've been super impressed with him. Yeah, I, I wouldn't take Walker Kessler in the top 10 necessarily because there's a lot of replaceability especially offensively and there's huge limitations about who you can play in with and all that sort of stuff but that getting this this is where you take the centers like in this you take him at like 15 or 16 like probably look you go back and do it like he's obviously shown a lot more than Mark Williams has so far that's coach and, and organization dependent too but He's impressed me unbelievably. Like we knew he was an elite shot blocker at Auburn. Like we haven't seen those numbers really ever, or at least in yeah. recent memories. Um, and they've they've translated across. Like he he challenges everything, and he gets a piece of a lot of them. And like what is that's what they're asking him to do. 
He's playing on a team that is exceeding expectations. He's a key part of it. What, what more could you ask for? Not much, man. I mean, you're you're talking about a team that a lot of folks, you know, coming into the season, I would like to know who, you know, genuinely, honestly thought that Utah was going to be where they are this year and like no. just pick their brain a little bit because I don't think anybody necessarily had these expectations. And then you consider that he was a part of the Rudy Gobert trade, you know, where they, they trade the Jazz traded Rudy Gobert to Minnesota. Minnesota had originally drafted. Walker Kessler, and then he was just a part of that trade almost as a, as a shoe in, like, let's take some flyers on some of these young guys. And they they dra- they essentially traded for his replacement. And it's crazy to see that he's given you six and a half points per game, six boards, almost like a half an assist, shooting 74% from the floor, um, 79% from the free throw line, almost two blocks a game in a very limited role. Like, it, it's crazy to see how much – his rim protection translated over because, you yeah. know, Josh, right now there's a guy in college basketball, Jamarion Sharp, plays for Western Kentucky, gives you almost five blocks per game. Like just because you can block in college doesn't mean – and Jamarion Sharp's a very fine player. Like he, he might get a cup of coffee in the NBA at some point, right? But he's not going to be drafted 22nd overall in this draft. I promise you that. The, the way that shot blocking is in college doesn't necessarily always translate over. Um, mobility concerns, things like that were some of the things that I had for Kessler. But it looks like he landed in the ideal situation where he is playing next to the right types of people like you just alluded to, and there's really no pressure. Like, he can go out there and do what he does best. He's not asked to do anything that he's unfamiliar with. And playing for Auburn, I think, next to Jabari Smith, where he was, like, the the SWAT guy, it prepared him perfectly for what Utah is asking of him right now. Yeah, like playing next to Kelly Olynyk and Larry Markin, and like that's what he did for Jabari Smith last season. That's the same thing. Like he's a guy that will space out. Like oh, let me control the paint. You do the other stuff. Um, he's been he's been unbelievably good, and I think it helps that he's just like he's huge. Like he's so he's so big yes. and strong strong as well. That when you know, when Zion comes in and challenges him, like he goes, yeah, "All right, all right, I know you're big, but I'm going to jump up. I'm not going to get smashed into the stanchion like say I can't even think like say Chet would for example like I know Chet's yeah. a really good defender but he would get folded really quickly like Walker Kessler's gigantic he is just a strong strong person and he is a, a he's a little bit older as well but again we, when you're taking centers like, take him here like, this is the spot to do it this is the spot to grab those guys yeah the other thing like, we haven't seen from him and correct me if I'm wrong Stephen, I think he, he took some threes at Auburn didn't he he started to expand his game out a little bit he did, and that shot's funny looking. It looks like a trebuchet or a pumpkin trucker where it just kind of wind up over the side shoulder and, and launches really funky. But he did take those shots, mm. and it, it'll be interesting to see if that translate over to Utah, like at least attempting them because they play a five-out system. So if you got Walker Kessler spotting up in the corner, that's that's scary if offensively. Doing that, yeah, if he starts doing that, then, then things change quite a bit. We haven't seen that, but we also haven't you – know, we didn't see Brooke Lopez do it for seven years either. And then all of a sudden he was just banging in threes like they were going out of fashion. So Kessler's got a little bit of, little bit of form there. Uh, he's been really, really impressive. I, I didn't have him in my all rookie first team, but I reckon I, I regretted a little bit. I think if I redid it again next week, he'd probably jump in there with just playing the role and how impactful he's been. It's been really good. Yeah. I mean, speaking of regret and if I could ha- do things over, I wouldn't have had him as a second round prospect, but Hey, you know, mm-hmm. that's just, that's part of the, the game that we play here. All right, so we'll move on to Jeremy Sohan. Um, really interesting defensive-minded prospect who can can move the ball, um, did that at Baylor. Uh, the best hair in the game. Um, right now yeah. for San Antonio, he's giving you eight points per game, four boards, two assists, shooting 46% from the floor, uh, a very low 17% from the three-point line, uh, making half of his free throws, almost one steal and a half a block per game. What did you think of the Baylor film when you watched him, Josh? Um, I was intrigued. I, I did have him top 10. I think I had him at like eight. So not far from where the Spurs picked him. Uh, uh, definitely in that same area. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think everything that we had or I had as a concern from him has shown itself and everything we yeah. thought, oh, that's really impressive as a strength has shown itself. Like this guy, really good defender, knows where to be, knows how to get into space, knows how to be on ball, be off ball, all that sort of stuff. But uh, can he shoot at all? And the answer so far is no. So, I think it's just basically been as advertised. I, and I'm, but I'm not sure yeah, where is, can he grow? Can he become a good shooter? I was intrigued in those couple of games where they had Trey Jones out. So Popovich said, all right, Sohan's our point guard. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. That's really interesting. He's had a couple of five and six assists a game. So that adds something because as as we know, like if you can't shoot, one of the ways to try and hide that is to be a ball handler. Yep. To have the ball in your hands so that you know, you're not just completely ignored, then be able to drive and create and, and help others that way. I don't think he's going to be able to do that full time, but if he could, then yeah, what is he? Six foot eight, six foot nine, ball handling point guard who's a defensive terror. Like that's a pretty interesting player. So I think he's been like as advertised with that extra wrinkle of playing point guard in the NBA, which I didn't think he'd like almost ever do. Yeah, and in that Baylor film, he wasn't necessarily used as a as a top of the key, let me initiate the offense no. guy. But they played they played through him a lot. So there was a little bit of that playmaking promise there. But going to San Antonio is really weird, right? Because they had Keldon Johnson, they got Devin Vassell and, and Yaka Pertle. So three of their better players all on that front court lineup. And then they draft Jeremy Sohan, and it's just really weird, like how they've established their their rotations, you know, their their pecking order, and and using him in unconventional ways. And we we know that there's a motive for that, right? Like obviously the Spurs are playing really bad be, because they have a less than favorable uh, favorable roster, so they can get a really good draft pick. Now, once their their number one player hopefully gets drafted this year. You know, what do you think the idealized version of Jeremy Sohan looks like? Huh. Yeah. Look, I, I, I don't know what he is. Like, is he is he a guy that, like, okay, his best case scenario for him, OG Ananobi? Like, OG wasn't an offensively well-rounded player or a solid shooter, and he worked himself into that. Yeah, is that, you know, I, I see the defensive side of that. Like, I don't know if Sohan's even got that level of offensive upside, but... I think that would be what the the mold of play you'd be trying to turn him into. Like, I don't think he's he's never going to be the like the other one is Ben Simmons, right? Like, he's yeah. not ever going to be the level of passer that or yeah, the vision that Simmons has. So, yeah, the, yeah, he doesn't have that sort of vision, I don't think. Um, but he projects to be a better shooter. If like that's not hard to do, but he does project to be a better shooter than Simmons. So I think it's sort of that's what you ideally want to get him to is to uh, an Ananobi or, or Simmons type of a player. Um, which is really valuable in the right ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that a role um, that would do him very well, it did this player very well, was a, a Boris Diaw, right? Like a very switchable defender. Um, eventually extended his range to three. Like that's going to be the big swing skill is being able to be a capable three-point shooter. But when I see like the defensive versatility and the playmaking, it reminds me a little bit of, of Boris Diaw at that size. Um, we'll move on to Tari Eason. Um, though he wasn't my, he wasn't a top ranked prospect on my board. He was probably my favorite coming out of LSU. Um, right now for the Rockets, he's given you eight points, five boards, and, a, and an assist, shooting forty three percent from the floor, thirty six percent from the three point line, eighty six percent from the free throw line, almost one and a half steals per game, and a half a block per game. And he was taken seventeenth overall. Um, Josh, I'll, I'll let you know that I had him as a, a top ten prospect coming into the season was very high on him i know that the shot was a big question for a lot of people the ball handling as well but when i saw the defensive upside the fact that he is like a home run defensive player um in college i think if if i had to track this i would classify them as mugging stills where he would just take the ball out of everybody's hands he may have led college basketball in mugging stills it was it was just fun to watch him beat up on people but what did you think about the LSU tape? Because that was a that was a tough team to watch when you when you watched them. But you know, I think that he stood out. He obviously did stand out. He's again, he's a yeah. little bit of an older prospect, and I, I had I didn't have him quite top ten like you did, but I knew a lot of people that did. I couldn't mm -hmm. quite get there with him. I think I had him fourteenth or fifteenth, maybe so a little bit ahead of where he's been. But he has been everything that the top ten group you included said he was going to be and maybe more to be honest like the defense has translated straight away like he's he's re really really good on that end like he's impactful he is a you can be a good defender like clay thompson yeah in his prime really good defender but clay thompson was not a defensive playmaker right there's they're different they're different things to me like clay was a guy that would go out there and do his thing like even like for younger players like john hunter is a solid enough defender a pretty good defender but he's mm -hmm. not in any way, shape, or form a defensive playmaker. Like he will never create a play defensively. He's never blocking shots. He's never getting steals. He's just containing, right? Tari Eason, like screw that. Like he is just making plays every time. Like he is just going for every ball. He's going for every block and not even really getting himself. He's not like getting going for Rondo steals. Like he is not getting himself out of position to get blown by. He's not doing Westbrook yeah. steals. He is making plays 
and turning turning the yeah the 15 minutes or so that Steven Silas deigns to allow him to play. Um, he's turning those minutes into a positive every time out there. I don't know why he's not playing more, but that's a, that's a separate issue. My issue with him coming in was like what he was doing at LSU. It was so high usage for a guy that I didn't think yeah. profiled as that good of an offensive player. Like what's he doing? Like 27 usage or something crazy like that. He's averaging like huge amount of points. Like when's he ever going to get that opportunity in the NBA? And his usage actually has been pretty good. Like he's, yeah. I think I, I, I had him as one of my top five rookies so far this season. I think that again, the role is small. But when we talk about guys who play well, like he just plays well. Like he just does what he needs to do. He's impactful every time he's on the court. And if he was on a team that had a common sense head coach, he'd be playing 30 minutes a night and he'd be literally in the rookie of the year conversation with what I've seen so far, I think. Well, yeah. And even we'll talk about him as a role player. I think something that's very important for, you know, folks who who may not know this, that even the role players in the NBA had pretty substantial roles at the collegiate level, right? Like, so looking at what Tari Eason is doing as a role mm. player in, in Houston now, I think that that makes a lot of sense, right? Because they're keeping his role simple, like go out there, mix it up defensively. You can spot up on the offensive end, like that three-point shot that he showed last year, really kind of showing some, some real signs behind it now, shooting about 36%. Um, not really asked to do much with the ball in his hand, which is really good, right? So as a role player, whenever you kind of take away the stuff that's a little bit more concerning and you let him only do what he's really good at, that helps him to shine as a role player. Whereas like some of these guys that gets that are so high usage, but they're mainly offensive hubs of scorers when they come in and they have to be that connector, like how you were talking about with Keegan Murray. Sometimes those players, they struggle because like how you said, like what else do you do when you're not shooting the ball? Can you pass? Can you defend? Can you rebound? Can you play within the team's concept? And Tari is showing that, you know, Houston's a very young team. I think that they did well to get him. That front court is also very loaded when you got, you know, Usman mm. Garuba, you got Alperen Shangun, and obviously we just talked about Jabari Smith. It's, I would imagine that's a, a tough thing to do to try to balance out that playing time between the four of them. Um, but overall, like, the head coaching is a tough job in general. Me personally, selfishly, because I love him, I would, I'm like you, I would love to see him play more, but the depth and where guys fit in the pecking order, I, I would imagine that kind of makes it a little bit more difficult. Oh, it shouldn't be that hard. There's 30 minutes of Eric Gordon that we don't need to see. And there's honestly, <laughs> KJ Martin's fun and all, but like I don't need 23 minutes of KJ Martin versus 15 of Tari Eason. Like I, Tari to me is already a better player than him, even though Martin's been pretty solid this season. I, mm-hmm. I just would rather see Eason get those minutes. But I, I do want to just quickly, just slightly go off topic not off topic because sure. you mentioned you talked about collegiate players having this high usage and moving into role players. I have this thought on, on these guys. Like it's why I was not big on Dalen Terry, right? If you're a college player who's coming in with a usage of 15, like I really worry about what you do in the NBA because as you said, like go from high school to college, to the NBA, like you're the, the big, the biggest dog in high school, then you're the big dog in college and you have to find a way into a low role. If you're, if you're the third or fourth usage guy on a team, like what Terry was in Arizona what, what do you do in the NBA? Like, what, what what do you do? Like, as if you can't demand the ball and be a dominating force that way, like, what do you do when you're in the NBA as a guy? Yeah, and, and and that's kind of like a, a, a draft philosophy take because Dalen Terry, like, as a as a kind of a role player in a sense for Arizona, um, Arizona ran a, runs a real you know egalitarian style offense where anybody can be a threat on any given night. Um, but you know, having Benedict Mather and Christian Coloco. Um, on that team and obviously Dalen Terry this they I felt like they distributed the usage around a little bit but I get your point because he wasn't asked to necessarily like be the offensive hub he's a great defender and a, and yeah, a pretty good playmaker but I think that s- some people looked at the the playmaking in the defense in the defense I'm sure and thought that well he was at least good at that let's see if that translate over and for whatever reason he's not getting any burn in Chicago despite there being minutes to go around over there so kind of makes me wonder what's going on that we don't know about. Well, yeah, maybe he just is like, they've, they've got a problem with a lot of these guys, their high draft picks, Patrick Williams, not being assertive enough offensively. Yeah. And maybe they're seeing Terry be worse than that and go, like, what, if, what are we doing here? Like, and we've got Goran Dragic and Kobe White and Ida Sumu and Alex Caruso and Zach Levine and mm-hmm. DeMar Rosen and just a bunch of wings that like, <laughs> if, if you're not going to show something, like how do you force your way in, into that role? But it's just an interesting thing. I just thought because his usage, I'm just trying to look it up. Now was like what fourteen percent, and he's yeah. as a, as a sophomore as well, not even as a freshman, fourteen percent 
Um, and like, okay, twenty percent I can I can get. Fourteen percent is like ridiculously low. Like, so what's he yeah. going to be like a a ten percentage Andre Roberson type player? Maybe I don't know. And, and it's really tough too because you know he really came up because Kirk Creasy got injured, you know, in Pac-12 play. And then they inserted Dalen Terry later in the season. And as the season progressed, like he started doing well, um, the the usage and efficiency kind of kept holding hands as the as playing time went up for him at Arizona. But we'll tra- we'll transition now to an older prospect who got um, drafted thirty first overall, Andrew Nembhard, um, nine points per game, three uh, excuse me, three boards, four assists, shooting forty seven percent from the floor, forty percent from deep. 87% from the line, giving you an uh, one steal and only a couple of blocks here and there. Um, second round pick, the first second round pick uh, coming out of Gonzaga. What did you think about Andrew Nemhar getting taken here? Because I didn't have him this high on my personal board. Um, there were a few people at No Ceilings that were um, big Nemhar's guy. I, ne- I wasn't necessarily, but he's showing some pretty substantial returns um, from where the Pacers got him, having some big moments in some close games. I, I honestly, I hated it. I thought, what are you doing? What are you taking this guy? Like, we're talking about a, a four-year senior who transferred, who like hasn't ever hit forty percent of his threes. Like, said, where's that skill there? Like, I hate. It. I go, what, what are you guys doing? Like, you've already mm-hmm. got Halliburton, you've got TJ McConnell, like you got Buddy Hill. You just took Matherin. Like, what's the point of this? All right, I was clearly wrong. He's been unbelievable, and. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think that he projects to have this high ceiling or high upside, but Halliburton was out and he just went, all right, I'm, it's my show, boys. And he was awesome at it. So I, I don't know what to think of this guy anymore because nothing that I saw from him through college, through numbers, through watching it made me ever think that he would be you know, as good as he has been and show that number one ability that he did in those couple of games. I, did, I thought there was no way that this is possible. And he's like shooting 40% from three of the NBA, shot only 38% last season in college, which is, again, is always a surprise to see those guys you know, step up to that level. Um, I've just been massively shocked and you know, proven wrong on my, uh, I, I had no, no, I don't think I even have him in the top 40. I don't think I just mm-hmm. no interest in him whatsoever. Yeah. And, and this goes back to what, what I was just discussing with Dale and Terry is like, you're drafting a role player to be a role player. Sometimes mm. you hit on that. Sometimes you don't right? like where you get those high efficiency, high usage guys and you ask them to take a step back in their role concentrate only what they're good at, you know, concentrate only what they're good at, like how Dale or excuse me, uh, Tari Eason is Andrew Nembhardt was a role player asked to draft was drafted to come and be a role player. And he's nailing it, you know, absolutely crushing it. Um, big shots and big games. And it's just been fun to see. Um, last prospect that we're going to talk about friend of the program, Jalen Williams of the Oklahoma city thunder right now, giving you 11 points per game, three boards, three assists, 53% from the floor, only about 30% from deep, but getting better. Um, 76% from the line, half a steal, half a block. Was taken 12th overall. Josh, this was a late riser, um, a pretty coming late to the party, so to speak, where during the last couple months, like everyone started saying that Jalen Williams now all of a sudden is a first-round talent, and it was just who wanted to be the highest on him. Obviously, Oklahoma City was at 12. Was that something that you saw coming? Okay, so like the way that I like deal with the draft is like I'm so heavily enmeshed in the NBA that I don't pay much attention to this stuff as the NBA season's going on. Like I, I listen to shows, listen to you guys' shows, I watch some clips, but it's in a passing manner, right? And I hadn't really heard about this guy at all. I heard nothing. I never was a name that had crossed in in my paths for thinking this. And then we got to the offseason, everyone started talking him up. And now, okay, all right, what is he like? A it's a 22-year-old or 21-year-old from um, Santa Clara. Like, okay, small school. Is he dominating out there? What's going on? Nah, guys, he's going to go. He's going to go top 30. All right, fine. All right. He's going to go top 20. Okay. And then I think I ended up settling at watching some of his stuff. I'm like, the size is there. The long arms are huge. Like, the passing ability is interesting. The defense is interesting. And I ended up settling on him at, like, I think 16 or 17 or something in that area. Um, and now, like, everything I've seen from him has been great. Like, I yeah. – I think he's already the Thunder's third best player. Um, mm. And it won't, I think he can easily become their second. Chet excluded because I, I don't know. I think he's, yeah. I think Williams is already better than Lou Dort pretty easily. And I think that he could easily take over from Josh Giddy at some point as well. I've been super impressed with everything he's done with role that changes every single game. Um, he's already forced his way into like a 30-minute-a-night role now. I've, I've just been super impressed with everything that he's done. I think there is – I don't think there's – Absolute star upside here, but there is okay. So I don't know. Do you count CJ McCollum as a star? Because I think he can be that level of player. 
I, I mean, this is it's getting really nuanced, but you know, like their superstar, like your Jason Tatum's mm-hmm. and what you're doing now, I would say that CJ McCollum would be a, a step down from that, perhaps in that star category. If not, yeah. then all star category. Never an, yeah, well, never an all star. CJ's never been an all star, and maybe Jalen yeah. never is. But a guy that you always go, oh, all right, he's a really good player. He's a fun could player. Be. He's a, he's an interesting guy. That if certain things broke right, you could see that. I that's I think it's been a, a really good pick from them. And I was skeptical of the unknown player from the small school, the older player rising up the draft. It's like, oh, what is this? Like, where's this going? But hey, it looks like it was right. Yeah, and some people that we have on the inside that that are really close to prospects did kind of tip us off a little bit here at No Ceilings that this would be a guy to watch out for in the mm. season. And certainly glad that we had that connection because he going twelfth even surpassed a lot of our expectations here here on the team. So um, he was great. We've interviewed him. He's a really he's a really good young man, and I'm just happy to see him succeed the way that he is now. But Josh, man, that that wraps up what all that I wanted to talk about as far as young NBA players. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for taking a little bit of your time uh, to no come problem. here on the show on Home and Away. It's a pleasure having you. We'd love to have you back further down the line. But, you know, want to give you an opportunity to uh, plug anything that you have in the works and where the folks can find and list- find you and listen to you. Uh, in the works, like just a million podcasts, like I do so many during the week. Like we're just if you play fantasy basketball, just want to hear about recaps of the NBA. I do that every day. You know, there's, there's, I don't know how many we do. Let's say 15 shows a week. So that's over at Locked On Fantasy Basketball, just covering everything that's happening in the NBA at all times. Um, and yeah, check me out on, on Twitter at RedRock underscore B-Boy. You can get my uh, more uncensored thoughts over there. Yeah, and you're a fun follow, man. I love seeing the way that people will, um, will you, you have such a diverse following where people will be like, yeah, you know, Josh is doing a great job. Like he called this and then you have some people will call you out and you're just like, what the heck, man? Like, <laughs> chill out. It's yeah. just, it's just basketball. But um, exactly. your phone follow, man. You're, you're a great dude. You know, again, just for my, for my end personally, thank you for the impact that you've given me as a podcaster. It means the world, and I'm glad that we were finally able to, you know, to link up and do a show today. Awesome, man. Right. It's, uh, it's been a long time coming. Yeah, for sure. So as far as me, you just heard me yesterday on Draft Deeper, the Monday show that we have here on No Ceilings, where we went through our big board. And it was a fun show. If you haven't listened yet, go back and do so. If you like what you're listening to on the podcast, be sure to pound down on that subscribe button, um, like, share, rate, and review, all of those fun things. You know, a five-star review certainly helps what we do here. And then if you want to read any of our written work, um, you can go to noceilingsnba.com to do that where we have. When I'm in town, we have six articles a week come out. When I'm out, we still maintain that five days a week. And uh, I will have had a piece drop on Sunday where I feature Arkansas Razorback Ricky Council, Woo Pig. That's where I'm from. So, you know, it's all love there. But that's going to do it for today's show. Um, Shout out to Josh. Thank you for that. Thank you for you, the listener and the viewer. And we will catch up to you all next time. Much love, everybody.